Blog Talk Radio. This is our common ground, alternative activists, empowerment, talk radio, speaking truth to our and ourselves. Who are you? You don't know. Don't tell me Negro, that's nothing. What were you before the white man mean you a Negro? And where were you? And what did you have? What was yours? What language did you speak then? I am a revolutionary. It's about what we didn't do. Amen. Then it speaks to us and the possibility for us as a future person. Because ultimately, our people's future resides on what we do outside of the White House. African descent fairly, America failed. She put them in chains. The government put them on slave quarters, put them on action block, auction blocks, put them in cotton fields, put them in inferior schools, put them in substandard housing, put them in scientific experience, experiments, put them in the lowest paying jobs, put them outside the equal protection of the law, kept them out of their racist bastions of higher education, and locked them into positions of hopelessness and helplessness. The government gives them the drugs, builds bigger prisons, passes a three-strike law, and then wants us to sing God Bless America? No, no, no. Not God Bless America. God... Our Common Ground with Janice Graham. Our Common Ground, speaking truth to power and ourselves. Our Common Ground, a higher ground for discourse, discussion, solutions, and ideas. I'm Janice Graham, and I'll be listening for you. Talk, talk, that matters. Transforming truth truth to power. One broadcast at a time. And now to Our Common Ground with Janice Graham. But because it's not equal, like that manager told me when I was working for DEA, he said to me, I said, look, we got all about drug and gun interdiction task forces in all the urban areas. Miami, Seattle, Washington, but they were all urban areas we were focusing on. I said, don't they use drugs in Potomac, Maryland? Don't they use them in Silver Spring or other maybe more affluent locations? He said, yes, Fog. Matter of fact, they use them probably more. They got the better stuff. He says, but if we go out there and start to lock those folks up, throw flashbangs in their homes, run through their houses, do all of the things that we do in our enforcement operations, you know what happened? We will get a phone call, and they will shut our operation down. And there goes your overtime. Then they'll just bring a dog, and the dog's nickname is Alert. 
That's his nickname. He alert. He will alert on a deodorizer. What I'm saying to you is there are all kinds of ways to get around your First and your Fourth Amendment rights, if that's what I want to do. And see, most African-Americans out there in the street, they know that, so they don't even want to challenge it a lot of times. Because if you get pulled over and you're on your way to work or you're on your way to going somewhere, you know right there that officer can put you in a situation where he can either create a problem for you, so you just give him consent. You don't want to be held up for work. You don't want to go through these changes. So you give him the consent and you say, go ahead. Now, it's easy to stand back and say, no, I don't want you to search my vehicle or all of the other rights that you have. But there are so many other things that come into play out there on that street. And what I'm saying is until we start to address those issues, until we start to really say to people, why are these disparities when we look at the same drug, crack cocaine, arrest, or, uh, uh, and we look at the same, the same arrest, the same incidents, but we see the numbers of, the numbers of African Americans that are arrested, charged and doing time for the same drug. I've always said, if the war on drugs was an equal opportunity enforcement operation, we wouldn't even be having the war on drugs issue today. <music> Officers involved. They don't have to give a statement right away. They're all the protections that they have. And once they get back, people are telling them, I know, I've been involved in shooting. I know what they say. Look, you want to change this. You don't want to say this. You want to be careful how you put this forward. All of this is real, ladies and gentlemen. And what I'm saying to you is once that begins to happen, you take a year or two years for a trial to come up, that jury is sitting there and that jury is hearing the officer saying, oh, well, I believe I thought he had a gun and I was threatened for my life. And I remember one of my partners was killed six months ago or so-and-so was killed. So I felt a threat when he turned around and he looked at me with his hands up saying, don't shoot. I still felt a threat. And you're going to get people that are going to sit on that jury and going to listen and say, you know what? I wasn't out there and I know police officers have a lot that they got to go through every day. And so, therefore, I'm going to give him the benefit of the doubt. What I'm simply saying here is there is a lot in law enforcement that is But as a black guy surrounded by mainly white colleagues, he started to notice something that every time he went into meetings, they were always told to target urban areas, poor areas, black areas. So one day he asked the question, don't they sell drugs out in the rich white neighborhoods too? Statistics actually show that they use more drugs there than in urban areas. So why aren't we investigating them? And that's when he was told by the agent in charge to leave those areas alone. Why? Because those rich white folk know judges, lawyers, and politicians. And if you start locking up their kids, they're going to make life miserable. In Fogg's words, they're going to jerk your chain and shut you down.
what we're saying to America is that we, it's time now. We've seen enough. We know enough that we can realize nothing has changed. So we're saying it's time. To, and law enforcement, this is the guys that, like myself, I was in the SWAT team. I was on the street. I was out there. I was over DEA, uh, running a DEA task force. I saw the more we locked people up, the more they just replaced them with other folks, the dealers, the distributors. We weren't making a dent at all, and we haven't made a dent in the war on drugs. So guys like myself, lawyers, judges who've come together, we formed this organization, LEAP, and we realize it's time now to put our voices out there. And I tell people this, you got to have faith. You got to believe and you got to have faith and you got to believe in something higher than you. When you go into this institution and you're trying to change and make change in this instance, this institution, there has to be something higher than you. So when I took a chance and I did it, well, I'm standing here today. That's an example to tell you that. No, I didn't get hurt. But when I went back and said, now you, you charged those guys with insubordination for leaving the command and doing what they did. You know what they, you know what they told me? They said, Fogg, just let bygones be bygones. You caught the fugitive. You did a great job. Just let bygones be bygones. But I didn't stop. And what we're saying here today to everyone that's listening, we're saying you can make a difference. You can make a difference if you stand up for what is right. It might cost you your life. We got too many people dying over in Iraq and countries around the world who are fighting for us, who are fighting for freedom, as we say. And these people are dying, giving up their life. I'm saying, why can't we do it right here at home? Stand up for what is right. Tonight at Our Common Ground, Truth Telling with Matthew Fall. He is one of the most important federal whistleblowers of our time. The war on drugs, law enforcement, and a new politics. He is a candidate for the 4th District in Maryland for Congress. Stay tuned. I'm Janice Graham, and I'll be listening for you. Thank you for joining us tonight. We've got some serious truth for you. Transforming truth to power, one broadcast at a time. And now, Janice Graham. And we thank you for being here with us on our common ground, the sanctuary set aside for black truth. Thank you for being with us. Tonight at our common ground, we're going to be doing some more truth-telling. We're waiting for our guest, Matthew Fogg, to join us. And before he does, and before I tell you some more about him, uh, I want to first shout out to Dr. Nathan Hare. Today is his birthday, and we want to say a happy birthday and thank you for all the contributions you and your wife, Julia Hare, Dr. Julia Hare, have made through the Black Think Tank. It was the original think tank of Black America, and we thank Dr. Nathan Hare for being there in the struggle and helping us to be able to 
establish what we all know now is the era of black power. Thank you so much. Um, Interesting things happened during the news cycles uh, this week. On yesterday, Bill Clinton went shopping for his new era sister soldier moment, and he came up against a new kind of black protest. And um, he kind of stepped in it. I think he is now a liability uh Um, in his wife's um, campaign. Um, And uh, the other thing I want to ask you, I I keep, my mother and I used to talk about this all the time before she left. And, um, and I, um, I'm starting to, she used to mention this to me a long time ago, and I didn't pay much attention to it. But I'm kind of running into it now. When I ask for my senior discount, people are looking at me strange. And even some of them are asking me for my driver's license. And I'm simply saying that I want my senior discount. <laughs> And somehow I'm going to have to pay attention more about that and start engaging people in discussion about why are you asking me for my driver's license. Uh, it especially happens with younger people. I don't know if they are being driven by their employers to say check ID or what, but I don't know how many of you have that experience. But I'm having that – I had that experience three times in the last four days. Um, So I wanted to mention it to you and ask you to pay attention to it and and give me a call and let me know whether or not uh, you're having that experience. One of the things that we are going to be doing tonight, as we have told you, is truth-telling about the war on drugs, law enforcement in this country, and about the new face of politics, the changing of the guard. Our guest tonight is Matthew Fogg. He is a former chief deputy U.S. marshal and was a special DEA agent and a federal whistleblower. He was told by the DEA in many instances in many meetings, that there should be no drug enforcement in rich white areas. And he wasn't supposed to tell that, but he told us. And after leaving the force, Matthew Fogg has spent his entire retirement advocating for greater protections for officers who expose internal corruption within law enforcement agency. He advocates for the civil rights of citizens who are in fear of police misconduct and brutality. He serves as a mentor for youth through his work with LEAP, Law Enforcement Against Prohibition. And he owns the trademark, Bigots with Badges, 
following the publication of a story in the New York Post that featured a headline that told the story of Fogg's years as a marshal and his lawsuit against the Justice Department. He took on the federal government nearly 20 years ago and won. As a deputy U.S. marshal, Fogg alleged that he and other black officers had endured harassment, been passed over for promotion, and received less desirable assignments tied to their duties of tracking and apprehending fugitives. All of it amounted to racial discrimination. A federal jury in Washington, D.C. in 1998 found that Fogg had indeed been a victim all of it amounted to racial discrimination, a federal jury. What followed were years of appeals, complaints, and for Fogg, a run on the cable news and speaking circuit denouncing structural racism and pushing criminal justice reform. He was the first African-American U.S. Marshal to win the largest racial discrimination lawsuit against the Department of Justice for million dollars and now he's taking it this fight lifelong for justice to capitol hill he is one of six democrats vying for the party nomination to replace outgoing representative donna edwards in maryland's fourth congressional district and we are so very pleased to have matthew fogg joining us tonight matthew are you there I am Hello. here. Thank you so much, and welcome to Our Common Ground. Uh, this is your first visit here, and we are so very pleased to have you. Um, I'm you. wondering if we can start off tonight about you telling us about your what you have learned in your career as a law enforcement officer and how you have transposed that into a political platform. Well, I mean, I grew up in Washington, D.C., uh, came up in the Civil Rights Movement, uh, had a chance to observe the, uh, you know, the things that I saw on television, uh, like the dog can't lose some people to hold this, the racial injustice. But I didn't quite really understand it. I mean, I was, you know, born in 51, so judge I was there around the time. But I, I, an incident that stood out in my life was the Washington, D.C. was still segregated. So uh, just about a block over from where I live at, the Eastern Branch Boys Club was uh, for whites only. But... We would play, what happened was, you know, just like you see what's going on in the cities now, um, uh, it's just, what's the word when they, uh, when they're racially, they start to move out uh, with gentrification, I'm sorry, I remember, yeah. Uh, well, for like black people, that, it's really migration. <laughs> yes, migration, exactly. Uh, but, and so what happened was a lot of them were coming, um, where the white folks was moving out as the black folks were migrating to Washington, D.C. So I remember we would play with these little white kids. We'd come into the neighborhood, 
Uh, we play and run around out on the intramural field in the grass and play football and those things. But when the boys' club would open up, they would allow, we all go running up the steps and go in the club. They'd stop the black kids and the white kids going in. And I didn't quite understand that. I just kind of accepted it for a few times. And we'd go around the back and look through the window and see the white kids having so much fun in the swimming pool and the gym and everything. When it was pristine, it was nice. One day I go home and I ask my mother. And I'm, she's trying to really explain me. Now, later on, I realized what was happening was she was trying to explain to me so that she wouldn't break me. So she was just telling me there were laws that we had to do with these laws. So to do, but she said these laws were abomination before God. And then she said, don't you ever let nobody tell you you're not as good as any other kid. And I'm still not quite getting it. But then... At one moment, she looked out the window, and as she was explaining to me, tears rolled down both sides of her face. And that's what really got my attention because I saw that, and I was like, Mom, why are you crying? I don't need to go to the boys' club. You know, I'm, now I'm kind of tripping out a little bit. And then she turned, and she looked at me, and she said, Son, maybe one day you'll make a difference. And so I kind of felt... That's the mantra, sort of, if I could say it, that she sort of placed upon me. Because as I got a little older, then I had an incident with the police myself where I got locked up, where I was the uh, witness in the case myself. And another kid were witnesses to a uh, case where it's strong arm robbery. These boys robbed this little boy, took his money from him. And I was working at the Safeway at the time, and the manager brought the little boy inside. He was crying. He just said, call the police. The police come by. The officer knew me who took the report. He just said, Frog, if we catch these guys, would you know they are? And I, I kind of, I didn't know their names. But I said, they, I know their faces, but they'd come around there and pick on this little boy. If I wasn't out there, if I'm out there, they wouldn't mess with him. So I didn't think no more of it. He just took down my name as a witness and many other store employees' names as a witness. Uh, about a month or so later, the detectives who got the case waited till I turned 18, because that happened in November, I turned 18 in December. They waited till I turned 18, and they came to the house and they arrested us, and uh, arrested my, um, me, and said that um charged me with robbery. And I was to- totally blown away. Didn't know what was going on. Uh, was kind of like, just couldn't figure it out for nothing. They take us down to the station, sit us down, and start interviewing me, and I mean, questioning me. And, and he said to me, he said, listen, you don't have a record. I checked you out. He says, Your, the other guy has a, a record, but you don't have one. He said, so you just say you did this, you can go home. And I'm like, Say, I did what? And I can go home. And I'm trying to figure this out. Finally, he shows me a picture of a little boy who I suppose he had robbed. And it turns out to be a little guy at the same way. And, you know, at first it was a relief that came over me because it's like, you know, when somebody, when they come and lock up like that and they charge you something, you know, you'd be wondering if you really did it. <laughs> I mean, I mean, it's just amazing how 
you don't know what's going through your mind. You don't know, but then when I realized the type of group up they had made, I was a relief came on me. Oh, man, this is crazy. We're the witnesses. And I'm trying to explain it to the guy. And he looks at me and he sees there's something about what I'm saying. So he goes, and he goes away for a while, and he comes back. Good while. He comes back, and he says, listen. He says, young boy, the boy said you did it. I knew he was lying. I knew that little boy did not say Little boy, my son, I knew he did not say that. But he wanted me to admit it so that it could help to get him, take some of the load off him for making that false arrest. Of course, I never admitted it. So that was on a Saturday. I had to go. They take me over to the cell block. I had to stay in that cell block for three days, two days to Monday evening. And um, it was hell because they put me in a cell with a guy who was um, going through heroin withdrawal. And a little six by eight cell being in a cell with somebody like that, you know. And I thought the dude was turning into a werewolf. But to make a long story short, having gone through that experience, and they found it when they released us, they just told us you can go. I go to college, Marshall University in West Virginia. You don't have nothing to do with being a U.S. Marshal as far as the names. But I go to Marshall. Uh, I'm there during the time when this movie came out, We Are Marshall. Had an airplane crash, wiped out the whole football team. I got there the year before the crash. So, or a year after the crash or something. And so anyway, I go through that ordeal down in West Virginia. I'm, I see racism now firsthand, discriminate racism. It's called a nigger for the first time in my life. All of these things. <laughs> um, you know, now I'm going through that process, but i become president of the Black Students Union. We had a BSU on campus. I changed the name to Black United Students Bus. I became the bus driver. And we, they made me a big old huge red, black, and green flag. And then um, we would set that flag at the end zone for all of the football games. And um, I ended up uh, um, bringing the flag and being a part of that. And so we ended up, uh, you know, it just created this sort of culture on campus where we stood up to discrimination. We actually uh, had a big forum where the president came to the university and Besides, we had a list of demands, things that we wanted to, to help improve the culture of blacks on campus. And uh, they did it and ended up uh, changing a lot of things. I graduated, came on back. Uh, then I came out, and that's when I found out that the record was still there when I got out of school. And I was... Um, trying to apply for jobs in law enforcement. And that's when I was shocked to find that the record of that robbery still existed when they told me that I wouldn't have no record. Mm-hmm. So that stopped me from becoming a Metro Transit police officer. But it also created the atmosphere for me to wind up becoming a U.S. Marshal where, you know, that's what God wanted me at anyway. Anyway, uh ended up getting the record expunged. Uh, cleared up and all of that. Well, I became a marshal. And then that's when I went to the academy and I began to see the racial bias of who we 
a lot of the targets that we were shooting at were black targets. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Um, the training, everything, you know, a few blacks in, the, in my class, most of them were white, you know. And that was like in the um, 1978. So that's right around the time that the war on drugs was going to start ratcheting up. And, and um, you know, it just everything was moving in a direction that I could see was um, not is not for uh, you know had that racial overtone to it. So mm-hmm. um, let, let me on. ask you about your training. Let me ask you. Let me, uh, let me ask you about your training when you were being trained to be a marshal, um, and you began to realize that most of your targets, as you said, were going to be black. Did you think of it in terms? Okay. Did you did you did you have a sense that you at that point that you were being trained to be a tool? Yeah. Did you recognize it then or did you recognize it as you further in your career? Well, I mean I mean I didn't really I didn't really get the full grasp until that the until I actually started working on reporting my duty station, started noticing the things that we were dealing with. But mm-hmm. uh, but but the reality is we didn't um I mean I just what I saw was like I said when I saw the targets, you know, the, we had these targets that we were shooting at for training. Mm-hmm. And the targets mm-hmm. were replicas, you know, or pictures of people. Oh, you know, I see I guys. see what you're saying. Uh huh. Right, there were there were pictures of people, bad guys, and a lot of them were bad guys having to be black men. So, but that's planting a seed right there in your mind, because yes. you know you're seeing this, and as you see this, um, you know, of course, when you get out of that training, you get your duty face or whatever, you know, especially white folks, their mindset was blacks were for criminals, all blacks. So, mm-hmm. uh huh. All blacks. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean, all yeah. of the targets weren't black people, mm-hmm. but the majority of, I mean, when you're talking about the numbers of blacks in the country, there was clearly that disproportionate number mm-hmm. of uh, mm-hmm. targets that were black, that were mm-hmm. black males. So mm-hmm. it was, it was, um, it was almost like uh, a formation, a piece of propaganda in the training, so that's that, exactly right. yeah, uh huh. Mm-hmm. It was. So as, I mean, so the war on drugs out. was clearly a demon. Part of it had to do with the demonization of black people. That's exactly right. And the Nixon, one of Nixon's top aides came out and admitted it the other day in the news. He came mm-hmm. out and he said the war. He just came out and flatly said it. He said the war on drugs. Matter of fact, I got the article. He said was was a war against black folks. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's what it was designed to do that, which mm-hmm. means technically, you know, in law we got this thing called the fruits of the poisonous tree. Uh, it says that, you know, when you um, when you break the law to enforce the law, then everything is inadmissible that came out of that arrest or, you know, that, that particular incident. Well, that's the same thing I'm saying, even with this whole war on drugs, this whole, Forest 
of the war on drugs as it should be um, inadmissible. I mean, everybody that was arrested, everybody that was um, uh, put in jail for drugs uh, should be uh, exonerated, and not only that, they should be paid reparations. The article said Nixon's aide reportedly admitted drug war was meant to target black people. That was uh, uh, that. That's an article that uh, Associated Press. Yeah, that came that came out last Thursday. Yeah, that's exactly right. Mm-hmm. And so when we look at that, that that exemplifies everything that we talked about that I talked about early on and all this stuff because you got to realize when I came on in 78 a lot of people weren't talking this way but I observed it and started talking about it right away that just the numbers of blacks that I would see coming through the system for the most simplest charges that you would never see white folks come through the system for those charges so mm-hmm, you, know, mm-hmm. you begin to see it firsthand. Uh, the numbers of blacks that were on probation and parole and the numbers of blacks were being violated for just any little thing they violated the parole because they had us going after these people. That's what the U.S. Mm-hmm. Marshal did. We went after parole and probation violations. So for us, it was kind of exciting because, you know, we out there running around like Miami Vice, you know, yep. mm-hmm. tracking laws from, from one part of the country to the next. And... Mm-hmm. Everything we were doing, it, it was excitement in it, but, it, you know, it was, it was the excitement of the hunt and all of that. Then one day I began to realize, man, I'm just a slave catcher. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm I'm out there tracking down slaves because I began to see that the criminal justice system was racially biased. And now, like I said, with this guy coming out saying the war on drugs was meant for black people, that right there should have every black mother who's lost a child, anybody that has been locked up or has a criminal record, should be all up and, you know, just up and just sheer arms in the sense of mindset of saying, man, I'm only just angry, upset about, um, about the fact that this country, this was orchestrated by the government. Yes. This wasn't just some... some um, vigilante group or organized crime. This was well, government is organized crime. This was mm-hmm. the federal government doing this. Mm-hmm. So, and we, all of us who were DEA agents, who were U.S. Marshals, who were ATF, FBI, we all played a role in this. Mm-hmm. And, but but and, and, let and, me ask you something, mm-hmm. Matt. The the other part of it too is that the black community, uh, most black citizens, because they had bought into so much of the propaganda, they were also advocates of high impact law enforcement during during the early years of the war on drugs. Well, they were, but the I bottom was they that. weren't paid government agents. We were paid right. government agents. See, what yeah, I'm saying I, it was, I got it was that part. tax dollars <laughs> that was, was, was driving us. I mean, it's one thing when you talk about organized. Well, that's why I tell people today, people go like, you know, quickly when they say, well, Black Lives Matter, they say, well, what about, you know, uh, what about the numbers of blacks killing each other? First thing out of my mouth is, 
that's a different story. That's not, I said, we don't pay them to kill each other, but we pay cops. And we're not paying yeah. a cop to, yeah. cop to kill you, but that's what we are doing. we pay paying mm-hmm. cops to kill mm-hmm. you. So that makes it different when you talk about a government official out here shooting and killing people as opposed to black on black. So they're trying to make the comparisons. And I'm saying the government had a, a great part in this whole war on drugs because once you start a war on drugs, then you, then you, once you made drugs illegal the way you did, then you created this sort of environment for people to, they know they can't go to the police if somebody steals their drugs or treats them wrong or, or they you know, they don't get paid for what they got. So they got to take the law in their own hands. That's all by design. And if that's why, uh, alcohol prohibition, uh, was you know was outlawed because they began to see that I mean you it know, created more were crime going to get than alcohol it's anyway no matter how, huh it created more crime than it, it's it created more crime that's right more violence mm-hmm. the violence mm-hmm. which it creates and because of the fallout because of the gangland and people trying to protect the alcohol and they knew mm-hmm. that they knew it's the mm-hmm. exact same thing with drugs they, and they knew that but they said. What we can do this time, we can keep it specifically condensed and controlled into the black neighborhoods, and we won't go after the whites. We won't, we won't put them in jail because they're not gonna stand for it. We start going mm-hmm. after white folks. They're gonna, you know, they're gonna, they know judges, lawyers, politicians. They got influence. We're gonna, they're gonna shut the whole operation down. Mm-hmm. But if mm-hmm. you can do it after black, they won't have an advocate. Nobody mm-hmm. to speak out for them. And and now the DEA really, Matt, doesn't have to do that because you have the Obama administration, which is sponsoring, beginning to sponsor the propaganda, not propaganda, but beginning to sponsor the message that drug addiction is a health problem rather than a law enforcement problem. But back when right. you were a DEA agent and a, a marshal, it was... These are criminals. That's right. Well, we were always saying it. Like, I was always saying that. This is not a law enforcement problem. Look, believe it or not, a lot of agents, a lot of us knew that just because we had already observed alcohol prohibition and what it did. So we saw the correlation. We could see the, you know, the relationship between both. But it was just that there were certain people bigots, racist people that had nefarious intentions who were in the government high places. And they and and, and they wanted to see these black folks get put in jail. That their their goal was to take them out of competition. Make sure they got felony records so they can't carry guns. So and all of the other things that come out of you know, t- taking away somebody's freedom. You know, you kill a generation right. after yep. generation. Yep, yep. Let me let me ask you about your colleagues. You know, in the last four years where we have seen open murder under the cover of law of black men and women, and um, there has been this discussion about these are bad apples. What was your view during that time about the men who were who were your colleagues who were anxious to do this? Well, I mean, again, 
the the culture of law enforcement, you know, I tell this people all the time, you know, when you go through all that training and you um, you go to the academy and you learn how to shoot and, and you learn how to go and jump and hop and run around and, and all of the things investigate. And when you get out there and they give you that badge and that gun, it, it, it really makes you proud, but you got a lot of authority. Mm-hmm. And and you want to go out there and you want to put it to use. You want to do something. You want to go out there. You want to go lock them out. You want to try them handcuffs out. You know, you want to mm-hmm. try that gun out. You know, you just want to pull it out and use it. And, but what happened is when we got to our duty stations, this whole war on drugs was, it was sort of like, just but you go to, you go out to people of color, the black lives don't matter. I mean, they really don't. I mean, I mean, I knew when I came out of the academy that if I stopped the car with four blacks and one with four whites in it, I knew whatever I said those black folks did, um, um, it was going to be the whole institution, the, the DA, the U.S. attorney, everybody, my management, everybody would back me up. They said, okay, they did fog. You say they had the drugs on them, they had the drugs on them. If you say they uh, they was cops, they ran, they swerved, they hit you, whatever they, you say they did, they got it. But now, uh-huh. you do the same to somebody white, that's going to be scrutiny. Well, what was your proper cause to stop with fog? Y'all ain't never asked me that before. So, you know, you begin to see the culture of indifference was in place. And so what what happens, we all, black and white, knew that black folks was free game in in the war in the war on crime. Uh-huh. So when we, we knew that if I kick your door in and it happened to be the wrong door, it ain't gonna be a lot that's gonna come out of that. Matter of fact, mm-hmm. I might still go in there and lock you up if you I kick your door in and you resist me. So all of these were things that I began to observe that our culture was doing, and even blacks kind of fell in line with the same thing. Um, and we observed it. We we saw the racial bias. We saw the the targeting and the racial profile, all of those things that, you know, people began to talk about. We saw it early on. and And it was like, you know, how do we stop this? just culture from moving in this direction. And then you begin to realize because it was from the top. It was it was being orchestrated from the top down to us. Mm-hmm. It's like, you know, somebody tell you, get your numbers up. Go out there and make arrests. People out there commit crimes. Go get your numbers up. Well, you go out there and you get your numbers up on black folk. Can't go out there and get your numbers up on white folk because they're not going to put up with it again. You know, you start to... It's more of them using, I mean, all the crime shows, they were committing more crime, they were using more drugs and everything else. The supply and demand for them was really up. We just couldn't go, go after them. Cause at we what did, point? Like I said, it was screwed. At, hmm? at what point did you decide to issue of blatant racism in law enforcement strategies on the war on drugs? And 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 how did you organize your your Colleagues, were you were you in this um, uh, discrimination 
uh, suit against the Department of Justice alone, or did you have, was it a class action? Well, it's like this. When I first, like, okay, in 1985 or so, 84, there was this one particular white chief. He was a chief deputy. And the guys are known racist. I mean, even white folks knew him to be a racist. Now, Matthew Fogg was probably one of the employees who you would consider most likely to succeed. I came on with a four-year degree. Black folks didn't want to come on with degrees at that time like that. Uh, in law enforcement, um, I was articulate. They liked me. You know, I fit the part. I even, they even liked my boy. I stepped away from the vehicle. Just all of the things that I had before. And... And then, but this particular manager, who was a racist, he was known to destroy the careers of African Americans. People coming on, people had something on the ball. You look like you could uh, move up the ranks, and you had the right stuff. He throw a monkey wrench into your career, do something to you, whatever, by design, you know, and so. People would tell you just they would tell me just try to avoid this guy. They said just avoid him, Paul. But it's pretty hard to avoid a chief because he runs the district. Yeah, yeah. So at some point he's gonna get his crosshairs on you. You know, the, you know we talk about crosshairs like when you look at yeah. the scope of that gun. Yeah. So, so at some point he's gonna get his crosshairs, and he did one day with me, and he he, he challenged me. I was on a high profile assignment. I had moved from. The Siberia of the Marshal Service, because every job has a Siberia. You know, some you know what we call an undesirable assignment. Nobody really wants it, but somebody's got to get it done. So, I had gotten away from the Siberia and had moved out to headquarters and was put on a special assignment. Top few did a hunt assignment, looking for some white guy and escaped out of prison and was uh, a big high-profile case, and he had killed Dr. Haverstein here in Washington, D.C., and a jewel burglar, and it was just a high-profile case. So, and I was doing very well, but he decided to tell some lies about me and conjure up some stuff that wasn't true, to make a long story short, and got me pulled off the assignment and reassigned back to the Siberia location. I was very hurt, distraught, down and out, but amazingly enough, as God would have it, when I first came on the marshal service, after I was on about two years, uh, I became an EEO investigator, collateral duty EEO investigator, and counselor, which meant they had to send me to EEO school, training, all of that stuff. So it made me aware of a process that a lot of people are intimidated by. And so I didn't know that God was preparing me for later down the road that I was going to have to utilize that process myself. So mm-hmm. what happened was what this guy did, what he did to me, I filed an EEO complaint against which a lot of people didn't want me to do because that was considered the death of your career if you filed any type of complaint against management. So these are, you know, we think of me as one 
particular sort of prototype, prototype, but but this is what we're talking about on a on a massive scale. We talk about discrimination within the rank and file, and so most people just go along with it the same way in the military. When you got a command and control environment, most of the time what you do is you go along because it's almost like it's, the odds are insurmountable almost to say that you would prevail on something like that. And all it would simply do is just mark your career and destroy you. So most people just kind of take it, take the abuse, whatever it is, drop your head and move on. So I didn't do that. So once I took on the agency against this particular man about what he was doing, and I had to file an EEO complaint, then it's like the the EEO process can be laborious, it can be long, it can be drawn out, and all of that's by design so that the people have a chance to discredit you at some point. They have a chance to, you know, to um, put you in a position. Can you hold one quick second? Okay, we're going to take a break, and when we come back, Max Parthas uh, is going to um, uh, is on the line and would like to talk with you. Our number is three four seven eight three eight nine eight five two. Tonight, truth telling about the war on drugs, law enforcement, and politics with Matthew Fogg. Thank you again for being with us, and we're going to come back. You have to understand the war on drugs has never been about drugs. America's public enemy number one is drug abuse. What will you do when someone offers you drugs? We intend to end the drug menace and to eliminate this dark, evil enemy within. Put them away. Put them away where they belong. Three strikes and you are out. Transforming truth to power, one broadcast at a time. You're listening to Our Common Ground with Janice Graham. Because our society is only as strong as all its individuals, the United Negro College Fund has helped educate thousands of doctors and researchers, but we need more. Thousands of architects and engineers, but we need more. Thousands of teachers and biologists, but we need more. And when disease, injustice, pollution, poverty, and countless other problems threaten to pull us apart, We had better educate every single person who has the potential to solve our problems. And to educate more people, we need more of your help. Give to the United Negro College Fund. With so much at stake, a mind is a terrible thing to waste. The I Declare Show. Real. Raw. Right now, Tuesdays, 9 p.m., the I Declare Show. With India Declare, she brings it. 
Real Raw and Right Now. The home of Real Raw Right Now talk media. And indeed, as we always say, I declare it. India declare Real Raw and Right Now. I declare Tuesdays, 9 p.m., Raw Talk Radio. The I Declare Show. No no doubt. Nixon chose to keep black folks under control by arresting their leaders, raiding their homes, and vilifying them night after night on the evening news. But you chose to watch reality TV, eat fast food, screw your spouses or your battery-operated products, and only think about the freedoms that your fellow Americans did not have when it was convenient for you. If I were you, America, I would be afraid, very afraid. You are on the brink of giving your country away to a man whose only interests are money and TV ratings. Trump. He, like Nixon, promises to make America great again. That's code for profiling Muslims, raiding their homes and vilifying them night after night on the evening. Trump will gut you and leave you bleeding out of your wherevers. That's the Trump presidency versus America. Maya Angelou once said, when someone shows you who they are, believe them the first time. We didn't believe it when it was Nixon, but today I'm telling you, America, believe it and stay woke. The American people need to get rid of this tiny-figured, micro-digited, rotting, papaya-faced, hate-geyser, vulgarian, brat come hell or high walk. Because to be clear, if Trump gets elected, it's the American people who are the hell and the high water. You're listening to Our Common Ground with Janice Graham. Transforming truth to power, one broadcast at a time. And now, Janice Graham. And we thank you for being with us tonight. We're talking with Matthew Fogg. He is the truth teller. He is a federal whistleblower, a former DEA agent, and deputy chief marshal who was told, um, we're going to tell you the truth, but you can't tell. But he did. And we're so glad to have him with us. Matt, are you back with us? Yeah, I like the way you said But, you know, when you said that, <laughs> I was going to laugh. But it did. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I mean, you know it takes a certain kind of, it, it takes a special kind of fella to um, sue the federal government while you are still employed by the federal government. You better have a, I understand you better have a exactly your what you're saying. You better no. be ready for it because they no, will you come. Better. And if you're not willing to scorch and burn, Hey, don't man, do you it. You better be more out of case. Okay. That's right. <laughs> and that, that's why they call me Batman. But I'm saying. <laughs> We've got Matt Parthas of the abolitionist movement who's been on hold to talk with you, Matt. And we're going to go to our phones. Max, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, good to see you tonight. Hope you are well. Peace, Sister Janice Graham. Thank you for giving me the opportunity to be here on your program once again. And uh, I'd also like to say hello to the brother, uh, Matt. I really appreciate what you're doing. Uh, It goes above and beyond. We've been asking for 
people like yourself to come out and start telling these truths. And uh, you're doing so, and I pray that your safety uh, stays paramount and that uh, nothing untoward happens to you. With that right. being said, I would like to ask you a couple of questions and then uh, offer a suggestion. The first question I'd like to ask you is, do you think that the U.S. government, via the justice system, the Justice Department, is exploiting the 13th Amendment exception clause that allows prisoners to be slaves and hence property? Of course they are. Of course it's an exploitation. It, it is, you know, I always say, you know, there's an old saying that says, what, a leopard never changes facts, you know, it always is what it is. Uh, you know, when we look at what America, how we got even slavery, we look at the fact that a nation went to war, brother killing sister, brother and sister against each other, all over whether or not black folks would remain property. So I said, if you, if the country, we lost more Americans in that war than any other war. So when you're talking about a nation that would actually go to war over human rights issues, then that says to me it is still America at apple pie. And so any exploitation of 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 the of the of the Thirteenth uh, uh, Amendment, right? Thirteenth Amendment. When you're talking about the, the, you just completely look at the criminal justice, the industrial prison complex, okay, prison industrial complex. When you look at it, and I was a part of it, I got, like I said, at one point I began to realize I'm no more, I'm just a slave trader. I'm a slave catcher. Yes, I, mean, uh, I heard you say that, and that's amazing. Huh? I heard the you say that, and that is amazing. Yeah, yes. You said I was what? I didn't. Somebody was talking. I heard you say that you were acting as a slave catcher, and that is indeed amazing. Which uh, leads me to my next question: Do you think? Do you believe that what we are doing right now with prison for profit, whether it be state, federal, yeah. or private, is modern day right. slavery? Exactly. Uh, look, look it, it, that's a no brainer. Uh, yes. And 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 I I mean most of your scholars and people that write about it, you know, just go ahead and, and literally uh, 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 equate it, equate it to that. Pretty much, you, when you're talking about a profit, when you're making a profit on making humans, uh, uh, putting them uh, in chains and and doing it the way we do it, that's slavery. It's, it's just no. That's right. It's just. You know, that's exactly what it is, and that's what we were participating in. And when we look at the numbers of African-Americans, that's why I said when we hear Nixon's aide comes out and says the war on drugs is a war against black people, that tells you that's it right there in a nutshell because that's when they locked up more blacks than ever before was, they said, go after them, charge them with drugs, and then we're going to even amp it up. We're going to say crack versus powder cocaine. We're going to come up with all these draconian drug laws. And that's what they did. And they built a, a slave institution where today you got more blacks either on probation, parole, or have been incarcerated or are incarcerated than there were slaves at the time of the Civil War. 
So yes, sir. When you see that. You say yes. It is. It is. It was. It's slavery by another name. That's all. Yes, sir. And I appreciate your answers on both of that, uh, those questions. And I would like to end it with this: Do you consider yourself then? a slavery abolitionist. Uh, I'm not talking about prison abolition. I'm talking about ending slavery, the selling and buying and exploiting of human beings by getting it out of our Constitution in the 13th Amendment and freeing people who are innocent that are in prison right right. now who we consider slaves. We would estimate that to be upwards of 1.5 million people who are right now incarcerated unjustly. So would you consider yourself an abolitionist rather than a reformer? Well, I guess you could call me. I guess, you know, I guess it would be part both, uh, abolitionist and a reformer. Because, I mean, you know, uh, I want to abolish this system, this unjust system that we know uh, putting them in jail, uh, what we call incarceration over education, over training, we know that that was by design. And even with the gun rights lobbyists, like I said, you know, you got more blacks with felonies now that they know we can't carry a gun because you got a felony. So bottom line is, I mean, it's, it's all the institution was designed to do just what it has done, and I was a part of it. And, that's, and when you have another cop, law enforcement officer, somebody on the level that I was on that observed what I said was, if I'm working with a bigot with a badge and I'm working right next to him and he's treating me this way, imagine what he's doing to people who don't carry a badge and a gun. So we, we we see all these stories that are coming out now where we hear the FBI uh, convicted so many people because that that lab, a lot of their uh, um, testimony was wrong and their lab information was wrong. We're now hearing... All these cops coming forward, uh, we find out Chicago planted drugs, all these birds departments planted drugs and set people up and used the, they used the system. It's like the movie 12 Years of Slavery. I never saw it, but they said the guy was free and then somebody grabbed him and made him a slave again. Solomon that's Northrup. That's exactly what it was. Right, and that's, and that's what we got today. You know, yes, somebody sir. thought... Somebody try to say you're free? No, we weren't free. They just run away and made us slaves again. But let me interject uh, one of the things, one of the factors, and we really advocate for people to think more clearly and deeply about this, is that some of you out there who are listening also think you are free. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I was a student this, at MIT. And had handcuffs on. <laughs> what do you mean, said so, again? No, I said I was a student at MIT and was oh, okay. stopped in the city of Cambridge, Massachusetts. And the first thing they did was they didn't want to hear what I was saying. They put handcuffs because I was somehow dangerous because my afro was too big. Right. Yes, we're all born with a lottery ticket these days, and it can happen to any one of us at any time. Nobody is safe. I would like to just finish this off by saying thank you, uh, Sister, for allowing me to ask these questions, and thank you, Brother Matt, for answering them. And I would also just say that 
in considering reform and abolition, if you're thinking of reform, then you're thinking that what we're dealing with is a mistake that can be corrected, that people made uh, errors in judgment. If you're thinking as an abolitionist, you think that this was done on purpose, as you said here in this radio program tonight, and it's something that cannot be reformed because it is a crime against humanity and by definition must be abolished. Thank you so much. Well, thank you, man. Absolutely. You know, it's it's kind of funny because I was thinking about something. Uh, uh, a news reporter, and that's what I was going to tell you, Janice, you were saying something that made me think about it. News reporter was talking about me, and he was saying, and he and he and he quotes me because I'm in the report, and 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 he, and he's talking about my case and things. He said that, and Mr. Fogg never thought he would have to deal with it, and and then they quote me, and I'm saying, I, I never, I never thought it, it would affect me. I never did. I thought. I just thought I could get away, not deal with it. And then all of a sudden, he clicked and said, but it did. (laughs) Yes. And as we say at our common ground all the time, every black person has their come to Jesus moment on who they are in this country. Right. What? Whether it's out in the street or whether it's a phone call from your child or whether your husband or your aunt or cousin or niece, it right. comes. So and we, we had say- better understand when the, when, the, when the last truck comes, they're coming for you. This is, this is not necessarily a conspiracy. It is a design. Right. Well, that is a conspiracy. But let me tell you something. Um, you know, I work EEO cases, and I've, I've represented a lot of people. I mean, I've worked my case in court, in federal court and everything, but I also have represented a lot of employees, federal workers, and people who file discrimination. And I've, I'm up to about 14 cases that I've won before the EOC commission arguing these cases. I mean, you know, we're using the silver rules of, uh, you know, federal federal civil rules, you know, procedures that, that, that handle these cases. So, I, you know, I got to be as, as astute as a lawyer. And mm-hmm. it's amazing at the numbers of people when they end up filing a discrimination complaint are just so blown away because they didn't never think it would happen to them. They yes. thought that somehow that was something that everybody else was doing, but they wouldn't have to because somewhere in their minds they're thinking that their merits and everything is getting them to where they are. And and mm-hmm. as you said, and as we learn in this type of environment, in this type of institution, at some point it's going to knock on your door because it's as American as apple pie. It is a way of life for America to be to have the the this sort of biased uh, racial divide. America is a very divided country. You know, it's funny because I hear people talk about Trump, and I gotta laugh because I'm like, I mean, look, Trump is a Trojan horse. Trump is really not the person that we're hearing all that stuff that he's saying and everything. Because let me tell you something: it's the dangerous ones are the ones who don't say it. It's the ones who are quiet. That's why the Republican Party was so upset with him 
because he was saying all the stuff they've been thinking all along. They just never said. Mm-hmm. They always pretend mm-hmm. like we're they're something else, and they're not. It reminds me of this legislation, some of this legislation that we get through. Like I remember this one bill was called the Fair Justice Act, and they always put a they always put a name on the legislation that is very deceptive, the Fair Justice Act. And it turned out to be one of the most unfair justice acts you could ever have. But they call it the Fair <laughs> Justice Act. Mm-hmm, and so mm-hmm. that's what the same thing with America. I'm seeing the fact that Trump is coming out saying, oh, we're going to build a wall. and we're gonna just Let me tell you something. There's a lot of stuff that Trump is saying. That's why the Republican Party is so upset with him, because they realize he ain't, first thing, he probably ain't really even about all of that stuff. But he's saying a lot of stuff, and we get caught up into it. And I'm like, man, with somebody saying something like that, that's not the person I'm concerned about. I'm the concerned about them ones who, like I said, cut a war on drugs behind, you know, behind closed doors and pretend like we we out here trying mm-hmm. to make America safe and, and, and make America right and keep people from using drugs. But the real reality of it was, we wanted something that, that we could use to go out and enslave uh, black folks and put them in prison and, and build this industrial prison complex and everything else that we have done. That's what that was all about. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, you, you know, it's really interesting. It. Huh? It, 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 it is very interesting that it was after chain gangs in the South were disbanded that private prisons and this new system of 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 filling these private prisons with the new era right. of 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 convicts uh for capital it's all about capitalism and, and the uh, neoliberal fixes aren't aren't working and they aren't intended to work then we right. have this problem of black misleadership that is not standing up and giving people the kind of information that they need and the kind of advocacy that they voted for to somehow set up a firewall in our for our community. That's and right. Max will prob- Max know, Parthas will probably tell you the firewall wouldn't work anyway. <laughs> so how well, do we be- <laughs> how do we even begin to dismantle and destroy? I, I just right. want to mention though on what you said earlier, uh, Sister Graham is the convict leasing program ended in 1928 allegedly, with Alabama being the last to use that. But Unicor began in 1934. Right. Unicor is now a billion-dollar-a-year industry doing nothing Absolutely. but using prison slave labor. Yes, right. See, so you know what I call it? See, this is the term y'all can use this one. I call it the mutating germ effect. I said every time when, when you're dealing with an institution where the leopard doesn't change its stripes, so I say first thing we understand, slavery, Slavery was created in America when they were running away from another country against tyranny and and all types of uh, uh, human rights issues. And they came to America, 
and these mugs got down here, and they became worse than what they came from. So, and what we're saying is that because America was built on slavery and the institution of slavery and the human rights violations that were, you know, created, and even though we were building a constitution that was saying the opposite, the point that is is that that's what we did. So now when we go out and we say, okay, well, we're going to end this, and that's not right. Finally, we're going to stop the war on drugs. My concern is then what will they come up with after that? Because it's always like, like you said, when they ended the chain gang, then they came up with this other thing, uh, the, the, the prison, the private prison, you know, institution. There's always something that mutates around. It, it reminds me of this guy who was, you know, I'm in this office called Law Enforcement Against Prohibition. This guy, he's a, he was a, the, uh, the sheriff, the head guy for law enforcement out in Seattle, I think it was. And he was talking about how uh, they went in and they got rid of the drug dealers in their neighborhoods and all cleaned the place up. And they was all excited and they felt good about it. He said, and man, then the Miami boys moved in. He said, man, these guys came up in there with automatic weapons clubs. They was beating people. He said, we wanted our old drug dealers back. You know, it's almost like everything that we get rid of be prepared for something worse to come. <laughs> I mean, you're thinking that that was bad. Wait till you see what they come up with. Wait till you see what they mutate into after that. That was after the prophecy the of Frederick Douglass as what, well. What, what he said, they mutate into, huh? That was the prophecy of Frederick Douglass as well. He said that slavery had many names over the years and would have many more names and that we had better be wary of what new form this slavery would come out in. And he was betrayed literally by Lincoln, who inserted that 13th Amendment exception clause nearly at the last minute as a way to continue slavery legally using the state now as the slave master to convict leasing. The prisons immediately switched colors from predominantly white to predominantly black. Well, let me let me throw something out here. Over the last 10 years with the uh, uh, the crash of our economy in this country, and there is always a looming or very dynamic recession going on. The fear of especially black people losing their jobs, the last to be hired, the first to be fired, uh, layoffs, and, and people are trying to compete uh, with a, a non-existent middle class, they're trying to keep people who can't ill afford it are buying cars, they're buying houses, they're sending their kids to private school, they're in debt. And then there is another element, and that is this whole notion of predatory lending, the whole notion right. of credit scores and fixing credit scores, online banking, online education, that is predatory in nature, payday loans, uh, all of these um, money-cashing um, places, and they seem to all be in the black community. That's a new slavery to me. Right. Well, I mean, the issue, I guess it comes down to 
it's always we're you know the poor people are always the poorer you are the easier you are to be a target. I mean that's literally anything in life. So mm-hmm. if we ever level the playing field, like I used to say, okay, tell you what, if we're gonna go on drugs, let's go get everybody. White and black, and just go after them all. I says, I'm okay with it. That's what y'all want to do. Let's do it. But you see, when somebody said, no, you can't do that, then what we did was, again, like I said, we broke the law to enforce the law. So that right there says it was fruits of the poisonous tree. It's like if you're going to do that, then you you will always create a scenario where the poor will continue to be poorer, they will continue to be uh, victims of crime, victims of everything you can think of, because they're not the level, the field is never level. They don't have the same opportunities to, to, to have the same ills and make the same mistakes as the people who got money and wealth do. Right, and like right. I said, and when you add W over B equals R in that formula, that's my theory for relativity for racism. It's, you know, white or black equals R, racism. And it, and it's the theory, it's like splitting the atom, E equals MC square. It's a theory relatively for, you know, creating nuclear energy. The same way when you talk about the theory of racism, you throw that formula into everything, walking, driving, breathing, while black. You throw that formula in there and you see we will wind up being always at the bottom of every ills list. The other day when I was giving my speech for uh, Congress, I'm in mean, one of the debates, and my opening or my closing, one of those, I said, I said, let's get something straight here. I said, now, here we're dealing with Prince George's County, Maryland, the most affluent, middle-class, black community, per capita income-making community in the country. That's Prince George's County. There's, you know, for blacks, there are more blacks out here who would be considered middle class, making money making, than any place else in America. But yet, we're at the bottom of every illness in every middle class setting in America. We're at the bottom of the illness, meaning highest foreclosures, highest property taxes, business deprivations. Black folks can't get business here. Um, uh, high profit, high tax on that. Our failing schools, elementary schools, and failing from elementary to junior high school, we call it the, the, the school to prison pipeline. We, I mean, just you name it. No place for veterans to come, no veteran care centers. This is Prince George's County. And, one, and we have one of the highest uh, youth unemployment rate. So I'm asking you, so I'm saying, now y'all think about this. We didn't have black folks after black folks sit up here, and we had these forms, and everybody learns to say exactly what the people, the constituents want to hear. Well, uh, my goal is to do this in Social Security. My goal is to do this. My goal, and I'm going to do this, and, and I'm going to do it. You, and I said to them, I said, they're not going to bust a grape. <laughs> I said, they're not, they're not going to bust a grape. They're going to sit here and tell you, first two years they get up in Congress, they're going to tell them, you a junior congressman, keep your mouth shut, 
and just sit in the corner and watch. I'm sorry. I told him I don't have time for that. I'm too old for that. I don't have time for that. I said, I will be on the front page of every newspaper I can find, putting them on black. I said, there's an old saying, the squeaky wheel gets the grease. I said, and trust me, they're going to need a lot of grease. I said, because, you know, we've got to understand something. We're going into a Congress of racial hostile environment. It is super racist, very racist. And we look at how they're doing President Obama. And even they said he rammed, and I told him, I said, they said President Obama rammed health care down our throat. I said it couldn't have happened to a better throat. That's what I told him <laughs> the other day. I said, it couldn't have happened to a better throat. Because, I mean, that's almost like how if, if I go to con, I said this, I go up here on Capitol Hill, we've already seen the other blacks that's been up there for decades, and yet we still at the bottom end of Irving Hill's list. That means nobody's listening to them, and they just up there acquiescing. They're, they're just placating and going along and, 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 and just simply just going along to, get, to keep a job. Well, you know, the thing I always say is that one of the basic and fundamental strategies that we have to employ in our community is the great reckoning. We have to start calling out the black misleadership by name and by deed, and it is time to weed them out. Matt, I don't know if you noticed during the Baltimore uprising when um, the the black Congress representative from the city of Baltimore arrived two days after the uprising started – and he was talking to the media, he he was talking as though he had never been in Baltimore ever in his life. Right. I was so enraged by that, and you all know that I call him by name all the time. It is time for John Lewis to go. It right. is time for him to go. It is time for us to weed out the ones who are there who have become corporatist representatives in the Congress rather than representatives of the black voters who sent them there. Now, that is if you believe that electoral, if the body politics electorally is important. But the thing that we have to get down to is the grassroots. The right. grassroots are tired of the left talking them to them from the at them from the left, the blackness leadership talking to them from the right, and they can't they can't figure out their grounding because we are not organizing and we are not educating them about what identifying what their issues are. I'm hoping Matt that. Uh, you can join Max Parthas on his show, The Abolitionist, at, Block Talk, at blacktalkradionetwork.com because the things that you have to say are the, are the truths that our people really need to hear, and they're right. not hearing right. it. I, I uh, agree, Max, and the invitation is certainly there for you. I, thank you for saying that. Uh, we do a program called New Abolitionist Radio where we're talking about solutions, 
But first, we have to change our perspective and start looking at this as slavery so we can fight it as such. If we keep going right. for reform, we're just treating it like it's a, a mistake somebody made. Like and this is a mistake. mistake. This is no mistake, right. and we have to treat this it as no such, mistake. and that changes everything. We That's think exactly that right. what you are saying right now, brother, is uh, admissible testimony if we were to have trials for crimes against humanity. And that's, that's our hope exactly right. to do that mm-hmm. one day. So the invitation mm-hmm. is there for you. Uh, I will send my information to uh, Sister Graham so she can forward it to you, and then we can get in contact and do that. Matthew, you know, before they, you, know, you they leave, got one of the things, Matthew is a candidate for District 4, which is uh, Representative Donna Edwards' seat, and she's running for Senate. Uh, an example of just what we're talking about. Donna Edwards is wor- running for Senate, and she has yet to to get the endorsement of her colleagues that she has worked with in Congress in the in the Congressional Black Caucus with for years and years. Yet right. they step out and they endorse the Hillary Clinton. Right. And we all know what that is about. If you don't know what that is about, you should check out our website and our Facebook page, OurCommonGround.com, because that that is how the reckoning is going to happen. Um, and, 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 and Max, what I want you to do is to, in his candidacy, make some recommendations about what he might include uh, if he is successful in this run for Congress. Yes, right. we certainly would be willing to for you to, uh, as well, uh, Brother Matt, but we're looking for people who are interested in abolition. We're tired of playing these reform games. Uh, we don't right. want prisoners with fluffy bunny slippers. We don't want prisoners who get college educations or better food or, or better TV right. channels. We want free men and women walking That's the streets exactly right. and compensated for the damages that has been done to them and their families. That's, that's what we're looking for, and that's an abolitionist perspective. So if you're an abolitionist candidate, we are pushing every abolitionist candidate we can. Currently, we have about five of but them. But then I'm an abolitionist candidate now that you explain it like that, because that's exactly what I've been saying. <laughs> See, it's, it's just and, and that, you simple, like that I mean, I, I was called in a reform, but, but I understand when you put the de- when you put a definition on it the, 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 and explain the difference, I, I get it. I get it, right. and I I would be an abolitionist. Thank you, brother. I would be a John Brown. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, in the abolitionist movement, we have we do everything. We've done everything from help people physically get their freedom, like Harriet Tubman did, to uh, fighting to the death, like John Brown did, or in legislation, like Frederick Douglass did. Any way you can, but we all agreed on one thing, that it was slavery and it had to end. And we need to come to that conclusion again. That's right. And so you see, but the thing that is this, and I was just telling Gerald uh, today, uh, Saunders, uh, you know, got the bill, that Eulira bill. And, and uh, I don't know if you guys, you know, you're familiar with that. But that's the legislation. Uh, and re, you know, to, to completely reform law enforcement. Anyway, uh, and you know, I see my my spirit has always been, like I said, I go back to the leopard doesn't change the stripes. I go look mm-hmm. every time 
that we come up with some, just like they tried to say, they tried to blame it on, uh, uh, what is it, Clinton, Bill Clinton, the ominous crime control bill. And I said, listen, I said, if the omnibus crime control bill was applied equally in this country, everything would fix itself because, you see, white folks bleed just like we do. They feel pain like we feel pain. Everything else. The problem is if they don't, if they're not allowed, if they're not being cut or they're not being given that pain like we are, then they can't, then they can't relate. So what happens is they turn around and they say, oh, uh, we want to be tough on crime. Yeah, because you're not the one being put in jail. You're not the one nobody's being tough on. You're being tough on black people. That's your buzzword for tough on crime. So, again, the ominous crime control bill, just like the war on drugs, just like anything, any legislation that, we, we, you know, we came up, and not saying something, but just show you an example. We came up with a bill called the Notification Federal Anti-Discrimination and Retaliation Act. It was called the No Fear Bill. Now, I worked with, I was, I was the chair of the No Fear Coalition who got the bill through. Now, we got this bill. This bill was designed, was designed to make federal managers and them be uh, accountable to discrimination in the federal government. Mm-hmm. And, and that came out of Marsha Coleman Adebayo. That's right. That's exactly. Me and Marsha, yes. both of us were co-chairs of the No Fear Coalition. So right. <laughs> we, we, let me we worked on this thing. We worked on it very, very intricately, and, and it, was a, it, was a, it was an amazing piece of legislation because we got it passed, even though it was a Democratic initiative, we got it passed under the Republicans, which was really a, a challenging, a daunting task. And I remember we had Lieberman, he was the one that was holding it up in committee because the NAACP had told him they didn't want the bill to pass under the Republicans. They wanted to wait until a Democratic president was in there. I'm like, they're saying, we're bleeding. That's like you saying, don't put a tourniquet on or don't stop the bleeding until the right doctor gets here. I said, that's crazy. I said, we, we need this bill passed. I don't care who's the president. And so, sure enough, we pushed it. We, we, we put pressure on Lieberman. He was running for president, so he didn't want these black folks putting pressure on him. So he pushed it out of committee. And then, then the rest of the promulgation process was who was able to get it signed on President Bush's desk. But I remember the fact that the fact was that the NAACP was trying to stop it from going through. And and was and we had to keep pushing to get this thing through. And it was a bill that then after we got it through, and this was the point I was gonna make. After we got now, after we got this thing through, so you know these mutating germs came right back and mutated around it and came up with stuff that where they could get around the bill and not make the bill be effective to what we originally wanted it to be effective for. So what I'm saying to you is America, that is America as apple pie. That is the nature of the beast. It's 
because slavery was meant and was a part of the very fabric of America, the institution is always going to find a way to create another slavery environment. No matter what we do, and, and that's scary, that's frightening to think about that because it's almost like you're saying, hey, then we're always going to be at Civil War's edge. We mm-hmm. always will be mm-hmm. that way because you, you, you begin to realize we're not going to be accepted. And then some people say, well, uh, in year 2025, 20, there ain't going to be no more white people. Don't you fool yourself. They, have to, they are storing so many embryos and eggs, and now they can determine the eyes and the color of somebody. Trust me, they're going to start making white folks, okay? <laughs> and I'm just I tell people all the time, I said, you can, think, you can think all you want to that their race is going to be diluted. It's always going to be a Hitler out there. It's always going to be to somehow come back with the superior race, somebody that's going to be dominating someone else. Wow. That's what, Max, we, that's what we have to look forward to, huh? Max, thank you so much for joining us. We're going to go to break, and when we come back, we're going to talk about the candidate, Matthew Fogg. You stay Thank you with so us. much. Thank you, my brother. All right. Um, you, you see, we have to have a lot of different perspectives in our discourse on all of this. I don't know how many of you uh, have seen the video that has gone viral of the Texas teacher whacking a child in a black child in her classroom and mocking him as he cried and protested. Look for it. Don't forget that we have to be vigil. She has been arrested in Texas. But we have to stay on these things. You're listening to Our Common Ground. I'm Janice Graham, and we'll be right back with Matthew Fogg, candidate for the 4th District in Maryland, to talk about his candidacy and his platform and what we can do to assist him. This is Our Common Ground. Thank you for joining us tonight. Transforming Truth to Power, one broadcast at a time. Stay tuned. wake up the entire African-American community to the hidden issue of mental health. It showed up in my life through one of my best friends. And we've been friends for over 30 years. One story at a time. If we would have known earlier, you know, we would have been more, much more supportive with her. Once I reached out to my sister, it got a little better. Once I told my mother, it got a little better. The more I talked about it, I felt it coming off. The healing is in me, and the healing in a journey can also be extended to others. It's our community and our mental health. Giving voice to what you're feeling is part of the healing. If you're strong enough to just open your mouth, that's all it takes. And the most revolutionary and healing thing that black people can do right now is to love one another. It's time to share ourselves. Healing starts with us. 
A message from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, the Ad Council, and the Stay Strong Foundation. You're watching poor, uneducated people be fed into a machine like meat to make sausage. Law enforcement agencies get rewarded in cash for the sheer numbers of drug arrests. The money's ours now. That's my money now. Nobody gels their population at the rate that we do. All sorts of people get a financial interest. Taser gun manufacturers, healthcare providers, phone companies. You build a bed, they fill the bed. And you'll get rich, and we'll get rich, and we'll all be rich together. Transforming truth to power, one broadcast at a time. Now back to Our Common Ground. And we do thank you for being with us tonight. And our guest is Matthew Fogg. He is a candidate for the 4th District of Maryland for the U.S. Congress. Uh, we do want to remind you that you can join us at on our Facebook page at Our Common Ground Talk and our website, OurCommonGround.com. On April 18th, we are bringing back Power Views. I did have a promo for it, but the sound engineer screwed up, and it's not on our board. But Power Views is going to be airing again on April 18th every week at 9 p.m., It is Listen and Learn Radio, lectures, conferences, speeches of the best black minds, authors, and activists in this country. Also coming up on Our Common Ground, we've got a lot of things coming at you. Doug Doug Haywood uh, of uh, Pacifica Radio is going to be joining us this month, and Umi Shala. You know him as Mr. Agnew, the founder and and um, co-leader of um, the Dream Defenders, uh, is going to be joining us. Uh, we're going to be talking to uh, a number of independent black broadcasters uh, during the month of May doing a lot of roundtables around this election. It's time for us to to take the temperature of what's really going on uh with this um with this election. Homework for our common ground this week. The Panama Papers. Read everything you can to understand what this is all about because it tells you about how capitalism works globally, how it works out of these United States and how infiltrated our government really is with the corporations and Wall Street in this country. The Panama Papers. Read them. Read the news analysis about them. 
there are heads of states, prime ministers across the country, across the globe, who are getting ready to resign as a result of what these papers reveal. And we hope that you will school yourself. And we're going to be bringing some someone on. I I, I think it's going to probably be Matt Taibbi. Uh, to talk with us about the Panama Papers, uh, I did send him a note, and uh, having a, we haven't set a date. Next uh, week, uh, we're going to be talking with Chauncey De Vega. Uh, he is has been doing a lot of work on the the characters and the character of this election season, and I'm really looking forward, and I hope you will join us. We're here every Saturday night at 10 p.m. Thank to, thanks to all of you who are in our chat room. Uh, Miss India Declare is holding it down, and we are always grateful to our regulars like House Music Lover and YJ and uh, those who hold on on the listen line here on our board. We are always grateful for you. Matt Fogg, thank you again for being with us here at Our Common Ground. Uh, I'm glad to have made this connection with you with Max Parthas uh, of the New Abolitionist Radio. Uh, He is one of our supporters, and um, that's how we do it in independent radio. We're not competing. We are part of a team free black people. <laughs> yeah. Matt, uh, tell us a little about how you got into this race and uh, what it's all about. What are some of the critical issues that you are uh, addressing uh, in addition to right. your knowledge and insight about law enforcement and the war on drugs and crime mm-hmm. and criminality? How's it going and what do you think? Well, I mean, you know, right now uh, you got six people running. Uh, you got a couple of names, you know, name carrying folks like former lieutenant, uh, lieutenant governor um, um, Anthony Brown. Uh-huh. He ran for governor and he lost to a Republican. Um, you got Glenn Ivey, a former state's attorney. He's running. You got uh, a lady named Jocelyn Pena. She's a she's a current delegate. She's running, and then you have a guy named Warren Christopher, who's a former military colonel in the military and all of that, and and uh, has worked done some work on the Hill. He's running. He's you know he's not a legislator. These other three people are lawyers, and then got one other guy, white guy's running. He's straighter. Uh, pretty much just a simple individual. He doesn't straight as I don't, I don't know if there's anything uh, real prominent in his background, but he's running for he's sort of uh, running for environmental change and so forth. So uh, for myself, I mean, I think that like you know one of the things that I think is why is Magic Fox so different from all the other congressional candidates? And I got like these four bullet points in my card. I say he challenges the U.S. Justice Department or internal employment discrimination and won a landmark verdict in federal court. He received the NAAC Covenant Fairbreaker Award, blazing a path for others to follow. He blew the whistle on racial profiling and over-aggressive policing in black neighborhoods 
and he was a first responder at Ground Zero in New York World Trade Center. He received NASA's Hero Award. Uh, you know, to me, as I explained, there are a lot of issues on the table. I mean, we're talking about Social Security. Uh, we want to make sure that that stays solvent. It doesn't. You know, what can we do to, to fix that? Of course, uh, you know, I look at, uh, you know, t- changing the cap for the people who are making a higher amount of money, the 200000 and up a year, uh, more taxes on them on that side of it. Possibly extending the year, extending the, for, for the new people coming on board, extending it for two more years, retirement age, you know, that's possibility. You know, those are things you can do. But, of course, protecting the senior citizens of better quality of life, support equal pay for women in police killings of unarmed, unarmed blacks, in police targeting of racial profiling, in the prison industrial complex, expunge all nonviolent uh, drug criminal records, uh, create jobs for black and Latino youth, uh, increase pay for teachers, uh, and increase the minimum wage, uh, you know, lower the high property tax on small businesses, uh, you know, keep people from losing their homes. we got these high foreclosure rates. I mean, these are the things that, you know, we, we of course we would want to, you know, correct. But, but, again, you're going into a very hostile Congress, uh, very hostile, very racist, don't really care about black lives, uh, and – that's one of the things that we're going to have to deal with. And I just know that when I go up there, most likely, you know, you know, when they start tomorrow trying to, you know, work on both sides of the aisle, I always say working on both sides of the aisle to those folks up there, it's like they give us fat back and crumbs and they get a chance to keep slavery. I mean, that's what they consider compromise. I'm sorry, but, uh, I know me. I'm just going to go up in there, and I will be a very loud whistleblower. And I realize on the House side, the congressional side, like if I was on the Senate side, I could I could uh, uh, do like Ted Cruz did. I could filibuster, only I wouldn't be reading about no green eggs and ham. I would be reading 100 years of lynching, you know, Uncle Tom's Cabin, you know, and how to live in a middle-class uh, neighborhood in America and still be considered three terms of a human being. But at the same time, on the House side, you can, you know, what you would have to do is take advantage of the media and expose, you know, because that's what it's all about. The squeaky wheel gets the grease. If you become a congressperson that exposes them, now they're not going to like you because they want people that just like we were talking about this whole congressional caucus. One of the things that I will fight for more than anything is term limits. I just think that there needs to be term limits on these legislators, that they get up in there, and at some point, it's like penicillin. If you take enough of it, it turns on you. <laughs> same thing with these. <laughs> what is your I mean, but that's the truth. That, you know, that's the truth. You take enough of it, it turns on you. These people have become penicillin. And, and and what it is is they're no longer doing what we <laughs> sent them up there to do. They turned on us. And mm-hmm. even if they do try to do the right thing, like Maxine Waters, when she tried to expose this whole Contra thing, dealing with 
bringing him, bringing uh, pumping the drugs into the black neighborhoods. And they went after California. her husband. They and went after her. Bank. They went after her, and they shut her and her husband down. That's shut right. Shut them down and made them conform. See, and that's what happens. You know, much is given, much is required. That's why, to be honest with you, people run out, they buy houses, and they buy all this stuff, and the government know they got you. They say, yeah, buddy. So if you, mm-hmm. if you turn got the wrong way, all lose. we got to do is, uh, you, you got know, more James, to lose. That James Baldwin said, there's nothing like trying to have war with people who have nothing to lose. That's exactly right. <laughs> it's a total different thing with them. When they ain't got That's nothing right. to lose. And these people, see, we call these people terrorists. But the reality is these people are like to the freedom fighters. That's what they are from their world. You know, uh, uh, we, we were called, our early uh, revolutionists were called terrorists by the England and so forth. But they were freedom fighters. Yep. Yep. And, and 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 like you said, when somebody walks into a room with a bomb strapped on them, and they're willing to blow themselves up and everybody around you, let me tell you something. That's one. That's one you can't deal with. I, I always remember we all jumped out. You know, we macho these cops. We all ran up on this guy, right? We all, man, we SWAT gear on. We ran up on the dude, and. The dude just said it. He didn't even say it very loud. He just said, I got a bomb on me. And, I mean, let me tell you something. We levitated off, we levitated off the ground to get away from him. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we, you talking about extra stage left. Everybody went running like crazy to get away from this dude. And I remember when I was running, I was kind of laughing to myself because I was waiting to hear the explosion. I figured, you know, my body's going to fly. I'm going to die. But it was just kind of something sort of surreal about that because we didn't think about it when we ran upon him. We didn't think about that, that this guy might want to kill himself and, and could care about us either. He turned out to not have a bomb when we had to get bring the bomb squad and everything in on But I just remember the you know, that, that whole just digesting that thought that you got people out there that they, their ideologies, they believe in what they're doing, and a lot of them feel like they don't have nothing to lose. They've already lost everything they had or whatever, or they just don't believe, they just feel like, I believe in this so much that I'm going to be a martyr. And those are the ones that you really can't, and law enforcement, you know, it's very, very difficult to 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 track a modern somebody like that. I mean, to to to, to determine that that's what's going to happen, and mm-hmm. and you know that's that's a whole different psychological uh, law enforcement uh, thing that we just you know somebody that's trying to get away is one thing, but somebody who's saying look. I'm just waiting for the moment when I can go somewhere and, and, and blow myself up and a bunch of people with me. That, that one there is the one that, you know, is always uh, going to be a challenge, you know? Yes, yes. So I, I find that we, 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 uh, 
you know, and what I'm doing and running for Congress, for me, it's, it's, it's very challenging in the sense that I look around me and I see the colleagues and the guys that are running with me, and I say, look, hey, you guys, have any of you, when we were all working, because all of us, all of the people that are running talk about how we were public servants. We worked in the government. And, you know, and I said, you know, a lot of them was in the military and everything else. I said, now, you observed a lot of this stuff when you were there. What did you do to stop it? And people have come up with, well, I did this, I did No, you didn't do, you didn't put your life on line. You didn't put yourself on the line like I did and say, look, I'm just going to go ahead and file something and blow the whistle. Because they knew they weren't ready for that type of challenge. And that's what they're trying to make us believe today. Like, well, I'm going to go up on Capitol Hill and I'm going to do this. Man, them people got a kick out of me the other day because uh, I said to them, quick, I said, they're not going to bump the grape. I said, and they're going to get up in there and, 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 and talk about what they're going to do. They're going to go right along with the program. Because that's mm-hmm. that's the that's the history that they already have. You know Absolutely, I mean, I mean mm-hmm. that's their history. And well, how do we get people in Congress like myself? I don't know because you know, if I had the people behind me supporting me, sending me the you know going up on my website, sending me the money. That I needed, so I can get on television like they doing. Uh, you know, get on, do my little ad, and put out more signs and do things that I could do. This would be a no-brainer. This would be a no. I'm telling you here and now because when you look at my history and you look at my background, and you look at the people that I'm running against, there's no comparison when you look at an advocate. When you look at that, when you say you look for somebody that's an advocate for the people, there's no comparison. Well, man, how can people help you? In well, the like I said, out these things the cost money. That you know, they can they can go up online. You know, Bernie Sanders is getting millions. They said they said this might be one of the first campaigns that will that will run out of steam before it runs out of money. <laughs> You know, in other words, uh-huh. you know, he'll run out of, you know, getting delegates, you know, and votes before he runs out of money. <laughs> and so, but that's how they could do it. People could send me 25, 30, 100, whatever, you know, just small amounts of money or whatever, but it'll add up to what I need to do. You know, you run a campaign like this, you know, you put. Ten, twenty, thirty thousand dollars, and you know you got guys raising a hundred thousand, hundred fifty thousand dollars. Man, with that type of money, every corner would have a sign on it. <laughs> yes, yeah. They have one of my yeah. signs up. You know what I mean? What do you think are the biggest impediments uh, that you face in this race? Probably n- name recognition. You know. Uh, Going up against, you know, just like I said, financial, you know, 
having to be able to get uh, my my information out there because I think when most people hear me talk, when I go to these forums, they hear me talk, they like what I'm saying, uh, they know I'm telling it like it is, white and black. They say, you know what, this guy is just telling it like it really is. He's not sitting up there trying to placate. I mean, like I said, we could talk about Social Security. We could talk about, uh, you know, NAFTA, and we could talk about, the, you know, the trade agreements and all of those things they ask us about, different little things. Oh, that's fine and dandy, but we got to deal with reality. And reality is we're in District 4. And what's going on in District 4? And District 4 is not getting the money that it deserves. You know, it's not getting the federal dollars it deserves. Uh, it has a lot of uh, yeah. issues that are not being addressed. So that's what the reality is. And why well, is it that way? Because, again, huh? It, it It is because we're not paying attention. And I posted both your blog and your uh, congressional candidacy Facebook page in our chat room. We're hoping people right. will respond. We're, we're running out of time, Matt, and I really okay. um, wish you a, a great deal of luck. I love your work at LEAP. I love the whole history of your career and what you have done on behalf of and, and blowing the whistle both on racial discrimination in federal employment because that is where – Folks, I'm telling you, government is where your black middle class is being buried. Uh, that's why people are hunkering in the Congress to 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 make government smaller. You walk into some of these agencies and you see all these black faces, and you, and they go, oh, horrid. And also for your advocacy on on our uh, on our behalf, and we're certainly going to invite you to come back and talk to us uh, more about your candidacy, and as you okay. get into as you get into the uh, electoral season. Thank you so much for for joining us. I'm really honored to to have you and to have you tell your story, to have you. Um, be able to lay out the kinds of issues, real critical issues that we face in real life. So right. look forward to me giving you a call and saying, Matt, it's time to come back. Thank you, Max Pothis, for okay. your um, for your call and your conversation with us tonight. And thank all of you for uh, being with us here on Our Common Ground. See you next week. Thank you for joining us on Our Common Ground tonight. We're especially thankful for your support, your calls, and your email. Don't forget to subscribe to us on Facebook and join us. Follow us on Twitter, Janice at OCG. Please join us next Saturday night. We're here every Saturday, 10 p.m. Eastern Time, speaking truth to power and ourselves.
coming up next week on Our Common Ground. We continue to our series with our sister Ruby Nails from the Spirit House Project next Saturday night here on Our Common Ground. And in the following Saturday, who's going to be with us? Dr. Tommy J. Curry of Texas A&M University. We'll be listening.